I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Dr. Karen Garst is the former executive director of the Oregon Community College Association and Oregon State Bar. She writes at the website Faithless Feminist, and she's the editor of a new book called Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm just delighted. Thank you for inviting me. So there's certainly been plenty of discussion about women and religion, but could you give us a brief overview of sort of the special um, hardships that many women in many religions face? Um, yes, and this book concentrates on the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I am writing another book that's going to include Islam, um, but this one doesn't. Um, Sadly, think... this could be the start of a very long series. <laughs> <laughs> Like Harry Potter? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the big issue, and I've done a lot of research in, in this area, and I don't think women are aware of it, but there used to be a feminine divine. And if you look back in the Paleolithic and you see the figurines and um, perhaps even a mother goddess that was honored and the, the cycles of women aligning with the cycles of nature, um, and then slowly but surely um, there was a pantheon of god and goddesses, but then the goddesses got eliminated, and it happened in many cultures kind of at the same time. So the first thing I think that women have to pay attention to is this is a male deity. In all the Abrahamic religions, it's male. And how does that impact uh, the sort of policies and beliefs the Judeo-Christian religion has? Well, what that means is that because of this, there is a subjugation of women. Because first there was a subjugation of the goddess. And you see that in the Babylonian myth, Enuma Elish, where Marduk says to the other male gods, hey, um, if you make me head god, I'll get rid of Tiamat, that goddess. So when you had a goddess, you had at least some feminine divine that women felt like, well, there's there's something here for me. Um, and when you totally eliminate that, you end up with a patriarchy, which is it's a male god. Um, there's male is in charge. A male is head of the family. And the women are really property. And if we look at certainly the Old Testament and the civilizations in the Iron Age, that's exactly what it was. Women were subjugated. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that it's Eve who takes the first bite of fruit. And uh, I have written a blog about this, that this whole concept of a tree and a serpent, um, a serpent was one of the symbols of the goddess. A tree, a pole was where Asherah, one of the goddesses in Canaan, was worshipped. So this isn't just by chance that we have this story in Genesis where the woman is to blame and the woman is at fault. And then we see that carried through, and because um, the women menstruates, so she's unclean, so she has to go in the tent um, while she has her period, and uh, she can't therefore be allowed in the temple. Um, all of these things contribute to the woman playing a much lesser role. 
I think it's interesting that you noted that female deities sort of all disappeared around the same period. Do you have any theories as to why that happened? Um, well, I, well, I do. <laughs> um, when we when we look at the change, most hunter gatherer societies were very uh, much more egalitarian, um, and they were small groups and they worked together. And when we um, civilization began with the discovery of agriculture and herding, um, there was more sedentary in nature, and property started. And so it was private property. This is my field. This is not your field. And so the property had to be defended. So then you have armies, and then you have a leader, and then you have a king, and then you have a, a deity, and then you have a king that's the son of the deity. So I think you see in very many civilizations a progression to uh, a male being in charge. Uh, even though um, there were goddesses uh, previously. But when you look at monotheism, it's the complete elimination of the feminine. So if you were to ask me how this plays out in our society today, how women are subjugated by religion, I mean, the things that would come to mind really quickly, uh, reproductive rights issues where, you know, a, a lot of religious conservatives don't want women to even have that option of mm-hmm. getting an abortion. They are uh, supposed to be submissive. You know, uh, they are. They can't be leaders in the church in many places. They're uh, supposed to be the housewives. They have a loss of freedom in some sense because their role uh, is defined for them. Uh, what do you see as the biggest uh, ways women are subjugated today because of religious beliefs? Well, the reason I got involved in this project was I was having lunch with a friend of mine who is an author, and she said, you need to write a book. And I said, well, the only thing I can get passionate about is atheists, because two days earlier, the Supreme Court had issued a decision in when Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. (laughs) And previously, um, because of another decision, they said that, you know, corporations are really people. So Mm -hmm. in this particular decision, Hobby Lobby said because of its religious views, it didn't have to follow the dictates of some of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. And the Supreme Court agreed with that in a five to four decision. And therefore, Hobby Lobby did not have to provide certain forms of birth control. Mm -hmm. And I might add that the five people who decided that were all Catholic men on the (laughs) Supreme Court. Shocking. So even today in 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 this decision, we're seeing a corporation being able to say, here's my religious views, therefore I don't want to do that. And a lot of it has to do with reproductive rights. And part of that is, um, I think a huge part of that is religion. I don't think you find very many people who are opposed to legal abortion who don't have some religious underpinning because of it. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes me raise a point, and I say this because I've brought this up, we've talked to some of them. What do you say to, to a lot of the women who may feel excluded by a lot of this, you know, progressive liberal talk, I guess, because there are atheists—I mean, let me go back for a second. I feel like one of the arguments that we can make that religion is bad for women— is because of reproductive rights. That's a huge issue of of who gets to control a woman's body. That, to me, seems like a pretty fundamental issue. But I do know a lot of, uh, at least a significant number, of atheists 
who are very pro-life, and they fall right into the patterns. They say for secular reasons. I'm wondering if you have a response to them. A significant number, you think? It's not small. I mean, I think if you look at the yeah. nuns, if you look at the non-religious, yeah. not all atheists, I, I'm, I'm making this up because we're sitting right here and I don't have a computer in front of me, but I think it's like 20% are <laughs> no. pro-life. Bullshit. And, not, yeah, and against uh, abortion rights. So I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you say? Because these are atheists. They're supposed to, yes. I think, be on our side on this, and they're not. Um, and they don't have well, religious reasons for it. One of the one of the things I think that's fascinating to look at is how does culture reproduce itself? You know, if we go way back and we talk about language, we talk about ritual, we talk about music, we talk about our identity, we talk about our ethnicity. And, you know, um, I, for example, this is a kind of funny example, but I couldn't wear shorts in an airport to take a flight. Because I was raised that way that you dress up, or at least, of course, I wear jeans now, but I couldn't do that. That's so a part of who I am and define my culture. Well, we have a lot of things like that. So maybe somebody grew up and was surrounded by people who said, oh, abortion's bad, et cetera. Um, that could be an influence of the culture. But there's always going to be people who have different views. And... I am not surprised that there's a percentage of people who, even though um, they don't have those religious views, may take a different view than me on, on abortion. But I think if we look at the political situation, the people who are advocating to change the laws to reverse Roe v. Wade are primarily very conservative Republicans. So I, I don't think you would have those people necessarily being actively engaged in changing the law for everybody else. They may personally be opposed to it, but they're not the ones probably who are really active in trying to uh, basically criminalize abortion again. Yeah. I think actually this is a really interesting, timely conversation that we're having for me personally, because I have definitely had and haven't started all about it this summer of just I feel like misogyny has been everywhere in my life. I've been dealing with it at work, my social life, all sorts of places. And I, I had dinner with my uh, two good friends last night. And we were kind of talking about that because it was I was on a softball team and I literally quit my own team because the men were treating me so poorly and I couldn't stand it anymore. And she was on that team, too. This got off the rails really quickly. But my point <laughs> is we were saying that it seems like we're seeing it everywhere, like the mansplaining phenomenon, like the misogyny against Hillary Clinton specifically. And but it's not just in church or something. You're seeing it everywhere in society. Everywhere. I'm seeing it all kinds of places. And the question we, we uh, posed, and I, and I pose it to you too, Karen, is it just we're shining a light on it and noticing it and pointing it out for what it is? Or is it somehow, I can't imagine it's getting worse than it was like in the 60s, but what's <laughs> happening right now? Well, one of, the, one of the phenomena, I think, Jessica, is is social media. You see that so much more often because you're exposed to it. Um, I just read this interesting article on Milo um, Yiannopoulos and uh, the anti-feminism, et cetera. And <laughs> when I took the name Faithful Feminist, I was really surprised by the pushback I got from that very word, because, of course, you know, I was active in when now started in the 60s and 70s. Just to clarify for a second, a good word. just to clarify for a second, you're saying you got more shit over the word feminist than you did faithless. 
Well, <laughs> I'm not sure a lot of people who are Christians were reading my blog. <laughs> but, so that, that may be a, a separating factor there. But I did, in comments, get pushback on feminism mm-hmm. and uh, had to constantly defend the word, saying, look, this is a word, and it means gender equality. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. It's a tough um, minefield to work in social media. It's you know, I mean, we've we've both faced it too. Where I, yeah. I know what you're saying, but yeah, trying to talk about the issue in any meaningful way online, no matter who you are and no matter mm-hmm. what publication you're writing for, mm-hmm. I can't. I don't know a single person who really talks about that issue, uh, coming from your perspective, who hasn't gotten that backlash. Yeah, exactly. But I've also gotten it from the other side. Um, Shanna Babylonia and I did a joint post about how men, we need more men in the secular movement. We just wanted to acknowledge the role, Emmett, like yourself and others, the importance of the role um, of men in the secular movement. And I was on In terms this, of what? Um, you needed more men in the secular movement to do well, what? We There's just wanted so to many. acknowledge the role of men in, in oh, okay. feminism and supporting gender oh, equality, okay. et cetera. Yes. And there was a Facebook group called No Gods, No Masters of Feminists, I think, or something like that. And they absolutely attacked me and said, you know, we don't need men. It was just this yeah. kind of anti-men group. And I, you know, I said, excuse me. I said, we wouldn't have gotten the right to vote if men hadn't supported changing the law. Mm-hmm. And I got all this sarcasm, like, well, you want to make them cake? <laughs> Stuff like that. And, and, uh, so you can't win. You can't win with any crowd. Oh, no. no. I think you just have to explain your position as saying, I just want younger women not to have to do the battles I did to be able to have the job they want, to pursue the career they want, the subject area they want, and to have control of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to have to go back to the 60s and fight for that all over again. And I believe that religion is one of the last cultural barriers to gender equality. I'm not sure we can get to gender equality with religion. Mm -hmm. And you know the bottom line of all this? It's a myth. When I was in high school, we read Edith Hamilton's um, book on mythology, and no one brought up the issue of religion. Nobody was going (laughs) to say that, yes, Christianity is a myth. Yes, Judaism is a myth. Yes, Islam is a myth. But if you study long and hard enough, it's not very hard to figure it out. And the borrowings, what I'm discovering is um, the story of the flood um, is borrowed. Um, the story of creation is borrowed. The story of Jesus all is. of these other things are found in myths at about the same time. Mm-hmm. And yet people don't, yeah, they'll believe their current myth, but they'll treat all the other stories that are just like it as myth. It is I, fascinating to me, but though you brought up like the, the divide kind of between feminists who have don't want to fight the same battle again. Cause every time you read about Hillary Clinton running in this race, um, I keep hearing these anecdotes of how younger women don't really care that she's a woman. Like they're yeah. not giving her any more uh, leeway on that. She's not winning any points yeah. with them and they just don't seem to care that she's a woman running for president. And I think the gist of that is like, yeah, it, I'm sure we'll get a woman. So I don't care I, if I don't like her, I don't necessarily support her just because she's a woman, because I'm sure there'll be another one coming up real soon. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of feminists who have been in the game for a while are like, Uh, no, this is a big deal. And anyway, I got so choked up when um, I was watching her acceptance speech 
and she said something about you know at I the Democratic for, convention. The, yes, I'm sorry. Um, this is the week the DNC just ended as we're yeah. recording. And Hillary Clinton did her acceptance speech about, and she mentioned, I may be the first um, nominee for president or female president or whatever, but out in this room, there's somebody else too. And they showed this woman in like maybe her 80s crying, and I <laughs> burst into tears. <laughs> oh, it was just so, it's, and I've gotten kind of shit from that from friends and family of like, why is it significant? Like, I told somebody, I got really emotional. Why is this a big deal to you? Yeah, I got really emotional when I voted for her in the primaries because it's a big well, deal for a, me. I had an experience in uh, when I was an undergrad, mm-hmm. and I went to Concordia College, which is a Lutheran college in Minnesota, and I had applied for a scholarship to Dartmouth. And the only woman on the committee said to me, why should we give it to you? You'll just get married and have children. <gasps> that needs oh, to no. say, I I didn't oh. get the scholarship, but I did get a PhD somewhere else. You but showed these them. women today haven't been through that. Right. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think we all look at models. If we see a woman astronaut, mm-hmm. we go, oh, I can be an astronaut. If we see a woman doctor, we can go, I can be a doctor. In fact, half the medical schools and half the law schools now are populated by women. But in terms of leading religion, We also need models to say, hey, these women left religion, they have a great life, they have a strong uh, set of morals, and yeah, some of them had a really tough time doing it because they were in an abusive religion, but you can do it too. I'm going to I'm going to open up a minefield here. Let's go ahead and do oh, that God. for a second. But following up on what you just said, Karen, why don't we see more women celebrated in the atheist world as it is? Because uh, and what I mean by that, usually if I ask you to name, you know, name five atheists who are famous or who Richard you admire, Dawkins, they're going to be they're going to be men. Um, and it's not because there's a lack of women. Jessica there are Lincoln. a lot of Jessica <laughs> is at the top of every list. Oh, yeah. God, there the is no lack of women, but we don't tend to talk about them. I don't hear people talking about them much. Why is that? Well, I think primarily if you look at kind of the new atheism, which grew up starting, let's say, Richard Dawkins, these people came from science and philosophy. And those were fields at that time that were populated primarily by men. And so it was other scientists and philosophers taking it. Plus, I... Um, saw when I first started doing some research, the debates are almost exclusively women. And I called several women, and I called Annie Laurie Gaylor at the... um, Freedom from Religion Foundation. Freedom from Religion, thank you. And she said, you know, a lot of people call, and they want Dan to speak, Dan Barker. Right, Mm -hmm. who's the Um, co-president and and her husband, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And in Portland, a friend and I, we wanted to debate two Christian women... Um, about religion, and I emailed every single woman who was a professor of religion in the state, um, <laughs> and we could find not one woman willing to debate us. No. So we ended up kind of play-acting and debating ourselves. <laughs> Did um, they tell but, you why they didn't want to participate? Uh not really. They just said um, no. I didn't get a lot of responses, uh-huh. but, you know, or I don't do debates or yeah. I can't do this. It, and you just, it, it's not as prevalent. But it's, uh, when I was doing, um, looking on Amazon the other day, I did a the 100 uh, best-selling books on atheism. And out of that 100, guess how many were women? Oh, oh man. Uh, f- f- four? Uh, six. 
<laughs> That's still very sad. I need to write a book. Um, so write early it down. on, um, <laughs> early on, I decided to do these essays exclusively by women, and I'm glad I did because um, I think it gives us a wide variety of women who have left religion who tell their stories, and some of these stories are gut wrenching. Mm. Um, and then people can read them and say, "Well, I can do this too." And then we need to encourage women who are atheists to speak up. Um, and participate, and to debate. I don't know if this is... I'm happy to debate anyone on the issue of religion and women. (laughs) It's interesting. I do know a lot of women who are vocal atheists, but a lot of the times when I hear when I read what they have to write, when I uh, listen to their podcasts, what have you, they're not really talking about atheism. And this is not a value thing. Yeah. This isn't a judgment thing. Mm-hmm. They have other issues that they tend to talk about. That are affected by religion. Sure. So, um, yeah. But they're not necessarily doing the same sort of debates. Or maybe, sure. like you said, maybe they're not asked that often to do the debates, too. Um, but I it's mean, definitely a difference. Yeah, and I think... I think there's just something to be said about things that affect you personally you're going to be more passionate about. Like, yeah. I know I get much more amped up talking about women's issues than I do about atheism. Nah, that's not fair. But I I yeah. do. I get, like, <laughs> really revved up about it because it's something that really affects me in a very deeply personal way. Um, that men, yeah, like, it's it does affect you peripherally. Sure. But it's not going to affect, like, your body or the right. way you're treated by people in society. Right. Well, yeah, and I try to do, for example, on my blog, The Faithless Feminist, I try to do issues around uh, the the subjugation of women in the Bible, and the appendix to my book kind of outlines not only the subjugation of women in the Bible and Christianity, but what has happened over the last uh, 2,000 years, whether it's, you know, the witch trials or uh, the crusades and killing women, etc. So I try to do that, but I also try to do current issues, um, whether it's reproductive rights or um, other things like that to focus on to focus on women. Um, and I think there needs to be more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give us an example? So your your book is a collection of stories from women who have left faith and kind of their journeys out of it. Can you give us an example of one story that you were just like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she wrote this. I can't believe this happened to her. Like what what really moved you as an editor? Well, um, the author of this particular essay is called Kale Wright, and I'm just going to read you a brief excerpt and then tell you what it means. Um, she is being brought before a set of elders of Jehovah's Witnesses, and here is what he says, the elder. You must consider him a tool of Satan. She was dating a man who is not a Jehovah's Witness. And she says, my face refused to remain neutral as my ears took in the sentence. Did I hear him right? With an expression of incredulity and confusion, I looked back at the elder who had just spoken and the two others on the panel with him and replied, "Uh, I don't see how that's possible. I don't think you understand. I love him. This isn't just a crush. I love him. I wouldn't be with just anybody. Jehovah is a God of love, and this is love. So I don't see how that is even remotely connected to Satan. And um, she goes on and talks about how at the end of that process, she said, I lost my faith. And she learns later on that one of the elders who was interviewing her was having an affair with a married woman. 
So talk about the hypocrisy of it all. And I can tell you that today she married this man, um, her boyfriend, and they had two beautiful children. (laughs) So there's a good ending to the story. But um, this is a pseudonym. She's writing um, under a pseudonym because even today, even though her parents know, if her cousins, et cetera, knew that she was an atheist and they're still members of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they can have nothing to do with her. Yeah, so just fellowshipping shame, is pretty awful. We have guilt. We have shunning today yeah. in 2016. So there are some real consequences for people in some of these religions who leave. I have another author, author who was raised in a very evangelical, very uh, shaming religion. And she wrote me the other day. She was at the beach. And she's around 50. And she said, I was out. And I was calm, and I felt good about myself. And I can't tell you how long it's been since I felt that way, if ever. And I think it's because I wrote the story. Wow. Wow. She got it out. She got it out, and she realized that she isn't sin herself, as she was told. She's not the cause of sin, as (laughs) St. Augustine has taught all of us. And she was able to process that and let go because when we're young and we are taught things by our parents, it is difficult to let go of those. These are people we look up to and we believe what they say. And issues like I think uh, Marlene Winnell um, in her book, Leaving the Soul, talks a lot about these psychological issues that affect us and how hard it is to change that. I'm curious, um, when you're looking through the uh, the stories that you collected and the, and the essays that you've read, was there a theme that came out that maybe surprised you? Was there a statement? A theme. A theme. Uh, well, one of, my, one of my essays that I find really interesting, and it's a woman who is in Portland, so I see her frequently, um, but she's not a feminist. <laughs> and she thinks that... Um, that men, uh, we need to look at some of the issues around men, and certainly there are a lot of them, uh, whether it's men uh, being abused in prison or other issues. Um, But I thought that was kind of interesting. And then a couple of the other women who have left religion totally still can't quite call themselves atheists. Mm. Yeah, we we talk a lot about... And so I thought that was kind of interesting. But the word is, has a has a negative meaning in our culture. Mm-hmm. What's stopping, what do you think is stopping more women from leaving religion? Because we're talking about all these reasons that religion hurts women. Why aren't more of them, well, I don't care if they call themselves atheists, by the way, but why are they sticking around? Well, part of it is a sense of community and ritual. My sister is visiting me, and we were driving up to Portland. <laughs> she's, she's an agnostic And we broke out into all the hymns we learned growing up Lutheran. And it was really a hoot. We were totally off key. But we had the best time of it. We said, you know, we miss the music. And I wouldn't have had a social life at all without the church in high school. We had activities. We had Lutheran League. We had choir. We had all of these different things. They create a hold on people. And one of my authors tells a story when she and her husband left the church, and they had been in this community for a while in Colorado, and it had a lot of friends in the church. None of the people in the church would have anything to do with them. 
So some of the people stick around because it's a sense of community. Mm-hmm. And then I think for certain populations, Sakibu Hutchinson writes about this in Moral Combat, where African-American women who kind of depend on the church for social services. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that hold it all together. And if somebody is raising a child and not taking into the church, the grandmother comes along. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of uh, issues that pull people in and that it's harder to step out and be different and let go. Let me ask you something. I don't know if this, I hope this doesn't come off as sexist because I don't want it to. Uh-oh. But I know, there you go. Um, I'm not racist. But... If you were trying to convince uh, a group of women as to why they should leave their faith, would it be... Would it be good to kind of use the Richard Dawkins, here's the logical arguments against God, which is kind of a umbrella and it should apply to everybody? Or would it be better to use specific, this is how it affects you as a woman? Um, I hope that comes, I hope that question makes sense. But like, is there one way that might be better? Well, I like to talk, if I'm talking to somebody, I like to talk about, look at this male God. (laughs) And the difference between having, um, again, call it mother goddess, whatever, but this relationship with nature. And I think it's so interesting that in the Old Testament, God, this male God, is the one who intervenes when Sarah can't conceive, when Rebecca can't conceive. He's like taken over those functions that that women held dearly and were honored because of. So I would like to go back to what does that say? And isn't that created? I mean, that's, that's really not the way life is. Uh, but I think giving, I think giving people, I've said this before about models and giving people examples. And I tell my own story, um, how I left religion and uh, what caused me to do it and how much, um, I've looked back and studied that, and uh, I think sharing personal stories, it just seems more real to people. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for being on our show, Karen. Your uh, your book, Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion, is coming out October 1st? And it's available on Amazon, and it'll be available at your local bookstore. Perhaps not every one of them. <laughs> That's because <laughs> they don't Thank you so much for this exist. opportunity, Jessica and Hamlet. I really enjoyed it. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.